0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: Now, what the joy of genius, the new book is about is how to soar higher and higher, higher on the genius spiral. Uh, This happens, by the way, to be uh, my wife and my 37th anniversary this month, our 37th wedding anniversary in the month that I'm uh, talking to you here. And one of the things that happened on our wedding day, we were up on a mountaintop when we when we did our mountain and when we did our wedding in Colorado, we walked up to the top of this mountain. And as we were exchanging our vows to each other, these two beautiful hawks came and started soaring in spirals in the sky above us the whole time we were giving our vows to each other. And my wife, I hadn't noticed this, and my wife suddenly said, oh, look up. And I looked up, and these hawks were just doing this beautiful spiral movement higher and higher in the sky, riding the wind currents. And I've used that example to this day to give an example of what genius is really like, because... When you notice a a bird flying higher, whether it's a hawk or any other kind of bird, soaring higher and higher on wind currents, it's not using any effort. It's just knowing how to make the moves that allow nature to support you in going higher. And that's what the joy of genius does. It shows you the moves that allows you to keep riding higher and higher on your genius Without effort, by just learning how to use the energy that's present in the moment.
0: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Gabe, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: Thank you very much. I'm really happy to be here.
0: Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. You're actually back here for a second time uh, for a good reason, because you were a huge hit with our audience the first time we had you. And uh, I found out recently and was uh, fortunate enough to receive a copy of the new book that you've just written, which we will get into. But before we do that, I would like to start by asking you, what did your parents do for a living? And what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career?
1: Ooh, what a great question. I love getting asked a question in an interview that I haven't ever been asked before. Nobody's ever asked me that. My mother was a, originally, she was a happy housewife until one day when my father was age 32, he got sick. And within a week, he died. And so my mother was only 34 at the time. And, um, They'd been married about eleven years, and according to her story, anyway, that what her plan was was to have um, two boys. She wanted to have a couple of boys, and she'd already had my brother Mike. And I was she was pregnant with me when my father died, and so she was well on her way to have her happy home of two boys and a husband, and living um, in Leesburg, Florida, where she had grown up, and she loved it there, and. My father was a he had been a conductor on the railroad, but he got a job after he married my mother as being the um, kind of a plant manager of an orange packing house where they would bring oranges and then they would pack them into boxes, mostly to be sent up north uh, to market. And so he was kind of the 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 boss of a small factory, I guess I would say and uh then he got this unusual kidney disease when he was 32 and um and died very suddenly and so it was a big impact on my mother because she was then left with very little money and had to fend for herself and so she became a newspaper reporter and a daily columnist in a small newspaper called the Leesburg Commercial and then uh by the way Leesburg is a town of about 10,000 or 15,000 now and it's about 40 miles west of Orlando Florida so uh, to give you a geographical picture where all this was taking place it's in an orange grove area where there's lots of swamps and um orange tro- groves and uh, fishing lakes bass fishing is a huge thing where i grew up and so um my mother i can't say my father had any impact because I I really never knew my father, but my mother had an enormous impact on me because she was a superb writer. And she also had the ability to really connect with people through her writing. And she gradually got to be from where she wasn't a reporter anymore. uh, She would write a column every week and kind of a semi humor column about things that were going on around town. And then pretty soon, they were asking her to do it every day. And so uh, she was very famous uh, writer in that area, everybody recognized her because there was a a picture of her every day in the paper next to her column. And so I couldn't walk down a street with her without two or three people stopping and talking to her. I remember spending large expanses of my childhood just standing next to her while she talked to somebody. Uh, and um, then to top it all off, she got elected mayor of Leesburg, Florida. And at that point, uh, then it was really hard to walk down the street with her because everybody wanted to stop and give her her opinion, uh, give her her their opinions. So um, I would say that, uh, she had probably the biggest impact on me uh, as far as writing, because when I started doing writing for, you know, like high school essays and things like that, she always wanted to read them first. And she was a brutal. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, But I appreciate it now because I I got some great writing advice from her, especially about how to write and really connect with people and if there's one piece of feedback i get from my books the books that Katie and i write like conscious loving about relationships or the the ones that i've written like the big leap uh people say it was like um it was like i was talking to them in my office you know it was like a one to one kind of thing and in the new book that's probably the biggest piece of um feedback i've gotten so far is Especially people that buy the audio book, which seems to be very popular these days is, is audio books. So many people have bought the audio book and have written to tell me that the joy of genius. It was kind of like me talking into their ear. It was, it was just like a quiet conversation with me. And I really appreciate that feedback because, um, you know, the, the thing that makes an author happier than anything else just about in the whole literary world is when somebody comes up to me on the street or in an airport or something and says, Hey, your book changed my life. I mean, that's life at its best when I hear things like that. And so, um, it's, it's been really wonderful to get that kind of feedback already about the new book. Cause it's only been out a, a week or two.
0: Yeah. Uh, having lost, uh, a father and not having had a father figure in your life. One, I wonder, I mean, I'm guessing you have kids. Uh, and two, what impact has that had on the kind of parent you are if you do have kids and, and what impact has that had overall on your life and the relationships that you had not having a father figure?
1: Well, I was very lucky in the sense that I grew up next door to my grandfather and he became a great father figure of me. And he was a wonderful man. He was almost 70 when I was born, but he lived to be 93 years old. And so I knew him as a daily presence in my life growing up. And he really stepped in and, you know, would take me to ball games and things like that. Um, so I did have a a father figure in that sense. Um, I think with my own daughter, I only have one daughter and, um, it's It's been a while since she was a little kid, so I'm going to have to dredge up a few memories here. But uh, I think the thing that I learned from maybe not having a father was to make sure I hung out with her a lot, you know, when she was growing up. And I was just telling somebody this morning that one of the great, um, there, there's several great moments in in the life of a parent or at least as I remember it. One was when my daughter got old enough to read a menu by herself, so I didn't have to read the menu to her in a restaurant. And then the second one was when she um, uh, got into horseback riding when she was 10 years old, because she was absolutely enthralled by horses from between about the age 10 and 13. And so my job was to chauffeur her to the stables on Saturday morning at eight o'clock, drop her off and come back and pick her up at 5 30. You know, that that's the interaction she wanted with me. And so I became kind of a chauffeur to her in those years. And then um she got into other things later, but then when she got her driver's license, that was another great demarcation of life for me because then I didn't have to chauffeur (laughs) her around. And um I remember particularly all the chauffeuring back and forth between the stables because for about three or four years there, my car smelled like horses, and uh, I'm not a horse person, so this was not exactly an attractive smell to me, <laughs> so, <laughs> but she loved it, and I loved being with her, so um, I had the opportunity to uh, do a lot of those kind of things with her when she was growing up.
2: How up?
0: Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Uh, So you're in an unusual position of being both a spiritual teacher and a parent. And I wonder how you balance those two things, because... I don't think that you're immune uh, to the problems that most people have as parents. And I don't imagine that you raised a child who's immune to problems that most children have with their parents just because of the fact that you know a lot of these things and you, you write about these subjects. And I wonder, how do you find that line between being a parent and also imparting the wisdom that you've gathered from your work to your, to your children in the parenting process or to your
1: daughter in that process? Well, again, I want to thank you for the question because nobody has ever asked me that. And I love so much when I get a brand new question that I've never (laughs) uh, thought of before. So let me give that a, a thoughtful right now answer. First of all, I can tell you that there is some time there's very little correlation sometimes between <laughs> the spiritual teacher and the parent. Um, and, uh, you know, like I remember going to my doctor one time when my daughter was 14 or 15. I think she's around 15. And I was having my physical, my annual physical. And he asked me if I had any unusual symptoms I hadn't told him about. And I said, well, occasionally I notice this ringing in my ears. And he said, well, when's the last time you noticed it? And I said, Well, the last couple of times I noticed it, it was when I was having an argument with my daughter about something. And he said, Well, around here, we would probably call that high blood pressure. And <laughs> it was the first time in my life I'd ever considered that I might have high blood pressure, you know, because every other time in my life, I go for my physical and they say, Oh, you have very low blood pressure. And I'd say, Okay, that's good, I guess. Uh, so here to suddenly have somebody um saying that my blood pressure was going up it really put me in touch with the fact that no matter how much good spiritual teaching you've done when it gets right down to it parenting is a ra- is about some very fundamental things that almost aren't even addressed in school of any kind you know like i i went through all the way from high school through high school and all the way through college Without ever having a class on communication or how to solve a problem without making somebody wrong or how to be in touch with your feelings. See, these are things I think kids ought to be taught in the first grade. I wish I'd had that kind of education, but I had to wait till I got my master's in counseling and my PhD in counseling psychology before we really got into the nuts and bolts and guts of. to communicate in stressful situations and i think it's almost malpractice of high schools and elementary schools not to have more conversation about that kind of thing because like i always say nobody ever goes to jail because of bad grammar you know they Mm -hmm. go because of bad behavior and so i think we really need to focus more on communication skills like i visited a private school one time in Berkeley, and I, uh, I remember it was um, run by a, a psychologist there named uh, Dr. Laura Phillips, and I observed it. And here were these kids in the first grade talking to each other and communicating with each other as if they were kind of in a little counseling group, like the, the they were going around talking about their feelings, and they were doing things like reflecting back what they had heard from the other person, and all these things that suddenly I realized, wow, I learned these in my master's and PhD training, but wouldn't it be great if those same same things could be taught like this to first graders? So anyway, that's kind of one of my big things that I talk about when I go around um, talking to um, education groups and folks at conferences like that. In my own personal case, I found that the thing that crossed over best for me between my professional work and my home work with my daughter was to stay out of making you statements. That was really valuable. You know, that's one of the things I learned in my counseling work is how to help people stop making you statements like you made me mad or you really have jerked me around on this or why don't you get your act together." So, whenever you hurl out that finger pointing you, you can almost count on it not going over very well. And so, it was important for me to learn with my daughter instead of the you, you, you stuff, you better stop that if you don't straighten up, blah, 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 was to get in touch with what was actually going on in me and talk to her in terms like, Amanda, I got really scared when you didn't come at 730 back home when you said you were going to be home, you know, so to talk to her and those kind of things about me that were true, that was very helpful. Um, and I think that was one crossover point that, that was very useful to me, but sometimes that would come at the end of an hour of going back and forth with her now, uh, or, or then from the time she was about 14 to 17 is when I had to most difficult time. My my high blood pressure went back down again when she was about seventeen because she began to, I think, begin to listen to me a little bit more and and less defensively and that kind of thing. So, um, you know, it was some long, slow, slogging work. But I I think now <laughs> another odd thing about my daughter too is she told me when she was a kid, she said, "Dad." I'm not going to get married till I'm 27 years old. And she she was only about 10 when she told me that. And I said, "Well, where did you come up with that idea?" And she said the most amazing thing to me. She said that most of the married people she saw especially married women looked like they had compromised some part of themselves in order they had they were being less than who they really were to be married. And I thought that was an astonishing thing for a 10-year-old to say. And, and she she said very specifically, she said, I want to be an artist when I grow up. And I don't want to do anything that gets in the way of my art. And if marriage is something that gets in the way of your art, I don't want to have anything to do with it. And I said, well, how did you come up with 27 that you said you weren't going to get married until you were 27? <laughs> And she said the darndest thing to me, because at the time I was probably, let's see, she's 10, I'd be 10. So I would be in my mid-30s at the time, or like 33 or 34. So I was older than 27 is the point I'm making. And I said, how did you come up with the age of 27? And she said, well, I just pulled a number out of the air that I thought would be when I was real old. <laughs> and <laughs> she thought twenty seven was uh, real old anyway, now she's um about to turn fifty, <laughs> and, uh, and so I needle her all the time about things she said like that. By the way, I wrote a lot of those things down being a writer, just like my mom wrote a lot of things that I said down so she could uh, use it in newspaper columns and uh, so uh, sometimes when i when I need a family story about myself, all I have to do is read one of my old one of my newspaper columns from 50 years ago, and uh, my mother was always uh, writing down all the um, funny things that I did around the house, or exasperating things.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, so two more questions about your mother, and then we'll get uh, specifically into the book. Uh, The first one being, what did she teach you about discipline, habits, uh, and craft? Uh, Particularly because I think that People who wrote at the time that your mother did lived in a very different world than we do today, where you actually had to sit down and really think through your writing, and it wasn't that you could publish every second we didn't have these sort of rapid feedback loops that we have, so I'd imagine that it really fundamentally changes somebody as a writer to not have those things in their life for the better is what it seems like
1: yes, I think there's well there's some ups and down upsides and downsides to that. one thing I really learned from my mother was. How to honor a deadline. I doubt that my mother missed a deadline in her life. And she had a deadline she had to hit every uh, day. Actually, she had to hit it by 7 p.m. at night because where she lived was in Leesburg, Florida. And they had this thing called the Jackrabbit Express, which was this car that would take all of the things that the local newspaper people had written, and they would actually drive it to Orlando, 40 miles away, and give it to the printers over there, and then it would be printed and be delivered back in the newspaper the next day. And so she had to hit that debt. I can remember many times. As a matter of fact, one of my favorite memories, I talked about this after she passed away some years ago they were intervi- interviewing me in the newspaper about what it was like to grow up with her and i shared the story of one night she went to take the stuff to the jackrabbit express to have it taken to orlando to meet her deadline and her car wouldn't start and so she <laughs> she stuffs the uh, her column uh in a pocket and gets this old bicycle out of the garage that I don't think I'd seen her ride it in—I don't know how many years—and she got this old bike out and she's plowing off to the to the um, uh, to give her column in at uh, seven o'clock at night, and she made the deadline. So you know she would go to extremes to make sure she hit the mark every day, and boy, that that really made an impact on me. So I can—I'm not trying to brag by saying this, but uh, I don't think I've missed very many deadlines in my life. I've written 40, I think this is my 43rd book and as well as other, lots of other articles and things. And being able to hit a deadline and be able to do what you say you're going to do has, has a, been an important part of my life. And if you think about it in a much larger sense, keeping your agreements is huge in relationships too, because I can't count the number of couples that have come through here that are doing battle because one or more of them won't keep their agreements and won't keep their promises and won't do what they say they're going to do. So, you know, making sure that we stay in integrity in life is such an important set of learnings. And I learned a lot about that from my mother and my grandmother, too. My grandmother, she, how's this for a great piece of advice? She said, Gay, if you always tell the truth, you won't ever need to remember what you said. Isn't that amazing? I mean, what a handy thing to know. And again, I'm not saying I always practiced that in an early age, but I certainly, you know, one of the hallmarks of our relationship work is we really invite people to learn how to communicate authentically about things like just simple things like I'm scared or I felt hurt when that happened or I feel angry now or I was sad about that or I feel happy right now. The very simplest types of communication are oftentimes the communications that nobody ever gets around to making. I mean, we've probably had, I don't know how many hundreds of couples here where one of them is complaining, you never tell me anything about your feelings. And so I think it's a common problem that Often we have is kind of holding things inside or not doing it maliciously, just not knowing how to communicate the language about what's going on inside ourselves. So it's an art, like anything else, that needs to be practiced. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
2: Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.
3: Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus
0: all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Wow. So you also mentioned that your mother became the mayor. And I wonder what you learned about communication and how to build bridges between people. Uh, in an environment uh, where people are divided, particularly because we live in such a divisive political environment today. So I, I wonder kind of what are the lessons that came from the experience of watching your mom as a mayor?
1: Well, as you asked that, I feel some tears coming behind my eyes because I, I wonder just a lot of people may not have ever experienced this, but I grew up in a time in the South when there was still racial segregation where um, whites and blacks and people of color uh, went to different schools and actually drank out of different water fountains. And I can remember all the water fountains in the stores and things where I was a kid had two different sets of water fountains. So it was a very different world that I grew up in. And my mother was the mayor of this little southern town in a time 1960 or so before the civil rights act and before segregation so it was it was very different and one of the things that my mother did i remember that made such a huge impact on me there was this big group of um african american um ministers that were going to have a convention in um in this area near Leesburg Florida there was this big encampment out there and they wanted to have their conference out there and my mother said sure you know what just like any other conference and she got in a lot of trouble for that and got into this big battle with the local sheriff who was this extremely racist guy there's actually been a whole book written about him his name was Willis McCall and um, there was books written about him he's kind of a classic racist southern sheriff though and so my mother got into this face off with him. And I was so, you know, I I, I can't tell you how proud I was of her for standing up to this powerful person, you know, and it made such an impact on me that I think that in my own life, I've had the opportunity to not do anything that big, but take some political stands and take some stands about things that I thought were moral issues and have sometimes gotten in trouble for them. And yet it didn't matter because I saw that being done in real life. And I saw that in real life, we get confronted about our values constantly. And so in in fact, I think being a grown up is partly about learning how to find out whether you 're a person who can stand in your values or are you going to compromise those values to get a payoff of some kind and I think you know looking at the political world today, that becomes very starkly apparent that you see a lot of people today who have surrendered their values in order to get some kind of a political payoff or a money payoff um, so it's um it's a big deal for all of us. And I really salute my mother for doing that kind of high integrity things that she did with her life that um that made an impact on me here fifty years later. Mm, wow. Well, let's do this. Let's
0: shift gears and start getting into this whole idea of the joy of genius. Uh, first off, what prompted your interest in this book? How was this sort of the next uh, evolution of, of the work that you did in The Big Leap?
1: Well, it's the sequel to The Big Leap. It grows out of The Big Leap, it starts kind of where The Big Leap leaves off. And in The Big Leap, just to remind everybody, I was really talking about two big issues. One is what I call the upper limit problem, which is how to get past the fears that grip us that keep us locked down underneath our highest potential, how to get up to expressing our highest potential, to live on what I call now called the genius spiral. And so there's a lot of pulls, kind of like quicksand pulls that are trying to get us all down in the mud of underneath our full potential. And yet it's a heroic act when any of us breaks through our upper limits and learns to occupy the highest realms of our genius spiral. And so the big leap lays out how that works and how to get outside your zones of incompetence, and your zones of competence, and, and out of even your zones of excellence, and how to break through into your genius. The second thing the big leap is about, besides the, um, the upper limit problem, is how to occupy this space of genius inside yourself that I believe all of us have. You know, when I bring up this subject in an auditorium, I can predict that about 25% of the people are going to raise their hand and say, what if you don't think you have any kind of genius? And I always love that question because one thing I really want to help people understand is that genius shows up in all sorts of different ways. And one of the biggest things that I invite people to do in the Big Leap is really open up and find out what your unique genius is, not to compare it to anybody else's. And, you know, it's a it's something that people, I get email all the time from people thanking me for making that point, saying, because they never thought they were a genius before, but when they started owning their individual unique gifts, they realized that there were things that they were so gifted at, but they had never really brought them forth. And so that's what the big leap is about, is how to bring forth your genius. Now, what the joy of genius, the new book is about, is how to soar higher and higher, higher on the genius spiral. Uh, This happens, by the way, to be uh, my wife and my 37th anniversary this month, our 37th wedding anniversary in the month that I'm Uh, talking to you here. And one of the things that happened on our wedding day, we were up on a mountaintop when we we did our mountain. And when we did our wedding in Colorado, we walked up to the top of this mountain. And as we were exchanging our vows to each other, these two beautiful hawks came and started soaring in spirals in the sky above us the whole time we were giving our vows to each other. And my wife, I hadn't noticed this, and my wife suddenly said, oh, look up. And I looked up, and these hawks were just doing this beautiful spiral movement higher and higher in the sky, riding the wind currents. And I've used that example to this day to give an example of what genius is really like, because when you notice a, a bird flying higher, whether it's a hawk or any other kind of bird soaring higher and higher on wind currents it's not using any effort it's just knowing how to make the moves that allow nature to support you in going higher and that's what the joy of genius does it shows you the moves that allows you to keep riding higher and higher on your genius without effort by just learning how to use the energy that's present in the moment
0: Wow. Okay, so I want to do a deeper dive into all of that. But uh, I want to start by asking about a quote and something that you mentioned as an experience. You said, when you're living your genius, you bring a certain quality of attention to whatever you're doing. You pay attention in a way that's different from when you're doing the things that you're merely good at. Now, one of the things that I remember underlining as I was reading this was that you actually spent uh, some time in part of your career teaching juvenile delinquents. What did they teach you about genius?
1: Oh my goodness! Um, yes, my first big job in the counseling field was in 1968. I saw my first client in 1968, uh, which now that I think about it is exactly 50 years ago, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it was. It was about this time, 50 years ago, and so I worked at a school for juvenile delinquents, and I was a counselor at the. I was. I lived at the end of the of a 24 24- kid dormitory in an apartment um and so i had 24 kids to look after from when school was over every day at 3:30 or so until school started again the next day and i was one of the teachers and counselors there at the school and so i worked a full school day and then i went to my apartment and then i ran a dorm for the rest of the uh, 24 uh, juvenile delinquents for the rest of the 24 hours and so it was what you might call a crash course in uh, in how to be a counselor 24 hours a day because oftentimes some outbreak would happen at 3 a.m. that I would have to deal with. Some kid would run away or some fight would break out or something like that. Well, in a way, they taught me about genius in a very unusual way because these kids were really badly beaten up in addition to whatever crimes they had committed. You know, many of them had had such awful lives that they were really, you know, whether they were defiant, some of them were very defiant, of course, and all of them had broken the law or in some form. But what I found was that rather than relating to them as criminals, I had to relate to them just like they were another aspect of myself in the sense that. I was only, what, 23 years old or so when I started working with them, and so I was barely out of my own adolescence myself, and so the only way I found that I could work with them was as a fellow human being on a quest, and so you know, to kind of turn their life, to help them turn their life into an adventure of overcoming adversity. And so that was the kind of the way I approached them. And I was in the process of overcoming adversity myself, because at the time, uh, I'd grown up, I was very obese as a kid, I was one of those fat babies that became a fat uh toddler, and then I became a fat elementary student. And I was A fat um, high school student. (laughs) So I struggled with obesity my whole time up until I was 24 years old. And then while I was working there at that school, I had some breakthroughs, I think partly in, in learning how to work with the kids where I broke through into my own deeper emotions. And so as I began to work with them about the things they were afraid of and the things they were sad about and that kind of thing, as you approach those aspects of yourself, you start coming across your genius. You start, as you go on that inner quest, you find that there are things down there that you love to do. And these kids were just like everybody else in that underneath everything, there are things that everybody loves to do. And that's a key to your genius, is finding out what you most love to do, because that will always cue you in to the kinds of things that you are here to do, that you are put on this planet to do, to act out your genius, to bring forth your genius, and life succeeds to the extent that you have brought forth your genius. There's a great quotation from the Gospel of Thomas, which is one of the apocryphal gospels that did not make it into the official Bible, but was there before they kind of edited uh, the original Bible into a. Uh, a different version. But in the original Gospel of Thomas, it says, if you bring forth what is within you, what is within you will save you. So that if you bring forth all the things in yourself, whatever it is, your hurts, your angers, your fears, and your potential, your genius, those things save you. And By save, I mean, they make your life so that you want to keep living it more every day and increasing your connection with genius. See, I think life is really about connecting with the deeper aspects of ourselves and then through that connecting with the deeper aspects of other human beings. You know, even though my wife and I have been married now for 37 years this month, I still learn things about her every week, every day. And that's why I've always felt, I think I've probably told her this a thousand times, that I feel like the luckiest man on earth that I get to be married to her because she's always reinventing herself. She's always coming up with new things she's interested in, and I am too. And so together we we grow in this way that's very exciting to hear about every day. So I think people need to do whatever it is that's going to bring forth the thing that's going to wake them up every morning going, wow, I get another day to do this. And so whatever the work it takes to get to that point, I'm all in favor of everybody doing that.
0: Wow. Wow. So earlier in our conversation, we were talking briefly about things that you thought we should have learned in school that you didn't get until you got a PhD in counseling. And I think I I asked this to you last time we spoke in some form or another, but why do you think we don't educate for the zone of genius? And why do you think our workplaces aren't developed to tap people's zone of genius? It, It seems like it's a very isolated incident that you get this sort of outlier at the top of a corporation who appears to be in their zone of genius, or you get the valedictorian or the super talented kid in school Why is it that we don't spend more time excavating genius from people in our education system? And how would we do it if we're going to redesign curriculum? And how do workplaces need to change in order to find this in their employees?
1: Yes. The very first thing that you need to do to bring forth your genius in yourself or in your organization is commitment. So, first, you need to make a commitment to your own genius, to bringing forth your own genius. I show people in in the new book, The Joy of Genius, I actually give some verbatim commitments that I've used here in the office with people. You know, just simple things like simple ways of I commit to bringing forth my genius, or I commit to spending at least one hour a day focusing on my genius. Simple commitments like that bring it into action. And if you think about it, I've had the great pleasure of doing corporate consulting with some amazing superstar top of the line executives like Michael Dell at Dell Computer and other folks that are operating at the very highest level. And what they need to do is find ways of everybody else in the organization making that commitment to genius too. So, in other words, What I've seen done in companies that I've worked with is whoever the top person is, first to get them committed to opening up more to their own genius, to trusting their own genius more, to living on the genius spiral more themselves. And sometimes it takes a wrestling match with a busy, uh, you know, a cognitive wrestling match with a busy top executives to get them to devote even 10 more minutes a day or an hour a day to something. I start with 10 minutes, by the way. And uh, that's our first assignment here when we work with uh, people drawing forth their geniuses. We simply invite them to sit down for 10 minutes and focus on their genius, even if they're doing only something simple like asking a question like, hmm, what is my genius? And journaling about it for 10 minutes or just asking that question for 10 minutes over and over. Hmm, what is my genius? Hmm, what are my unique abilities? Hmm. What do I love doing more than anything else in my work? So when people begin to live in those kinds of questions throughout an organization, it ignites genius. And so uh, it's often a top down issue though, because unless the person at the top really gets committed to bringing forth new avenues of genius in themselves, then it's hard for that, for everybody else to get committed to that down in other aspects of the organization, but one of the things I saw at Dell and some of the other great places that I was consulting at back when I was doing a lot of corporate consulting. By the way, I haven't done much of on-site consulting in the past uh, twenty years or so because I got so busy doing, you know, books and other things like that that I um, I haven't been able to uh, find the time to do as much. But for the through the eighties and on into maybe nineteen ninety-six or ninety-seven. I did a lot of on-site work where I'd go to Dell or to Motorola or to wherever I went and work with them for days at a time. So um, during that time, it would often be a case of working with the executive intensely for an hour or two and then helping people make commitments at other levels of the organization that would fit their particular mission in that part of the organization. So.
0: What is it uh, that enables people who are at the very top, people like Michael Dell, to perform at the level they do and produce the results that they do?
1: Well, I can tell you in Michael's case, well, I I will extend this to so many others, but like Michael is the quickest learner. I mean, he doesn't waste 10 seconds in being defensive. You know, what paralyzes learning is defensiveness. So when people are confronted by reality, (laughs) a lot of times, People don't want to look at reality, but the people that are great leaders are people that can look at reality, take a 10-second snapshot of it, or a tenth of a second snapshot of it, in Michael's case, and then formulate a plan about it. But you notice a lot of people that aren't as successful, they kind of argue with reality. They try to pretend things aren't there, or they tend to justify things, or above all, they try to just be right you know, they want to be right about things. And so they they argue just to be right. And I'll tell you, there's nothing that can put a screeching halt on learning more than a bunch of people who want to be right. And so that's why why we keep having the same political problems that we're still arguing about the same things that we were arguing about a long time ago, because, um, you know, that I don't think in politics it's very easy to go to the heart of the matter. So people just sit there and make each other wrong back and forth. And wouldn't it be refreshing if instead of that, you know, one politician said, you know, I'm really feeling sad about the lack of progress we're making. It'd be great to hear somebody just say an authentic sentence like that. Rather than I'm right and you're wrong, you're wrong, you're evil. You know, there's there's all this back and forth um, about um, which party's better and everything like that. But nobody's really done the emotional work that's necessary to get underneath those opinions and find out how to really liberate themselves. Mm, wow.
0: So. One of the other things you said in the book is anytime you're unhappy, you're thinking about something you cannot possibly change or control. Unhappiness comes from trying to control things that are actually uncontrollable and trying to change things that are unchangeable. So how do you balance that with the bias to action that's often necessary to bring out about change in our lives and how you distinguish between what is changeable and what's not?
1: Great question. Thank you. It takes a little bit of inner work for example take take ten, uh, i say it, it begins with 10 seconds of inner work so you have to be willing to give yourself 10 seconds of asking yourself an important question like for example many people spend a lot of time running scenarios through their mind about other people disapproving of them and so Hallucinated disapproval is one of the main causes that keep people out of their genius. So we go around oftentimes thinking about disapproving thoughts, other people disapproving of us, or what would other people think. So apply this to it. Ask yourself, do I really have any control over what other people think? And the answer to that if you're honest, is no, because the other person is over there in a different skin and a different brain. Now, you could influence, you know, advertisers attempt to influence all the time by presenting happy pictures of people drinking a certain variety of beer or in a magazine, a happy picture of somebody smoking a cigarette or a happy picture of whatever. And they're attempting to imprint on your brain that, hey, that's a cool thing to do. And so a lot of the things that they're advertising, of course, are not things that are actually good for us. But the idea is that if I keep imprinting on their brain the right type of cigarette or the right type of liquor or whatever they're selling, that eventually the person will realize, well, actually, maybe I do want some of that. and so. But down underneath it, fundamentally, nobody actually needs anything other than a few fundamental types of beverage and food and that kind of thing. So to get down to the really fundamentals, we have to ask ourselves, do we have any control over what other people think? And the answer to that is no. And so if you've been thinking about what other people think, you have your mind space is occupied with that. And if you're able to clear that out of your mind space, a huge new space opens up for your creativity to flourish in. And that is an important part of what I'm getting at in the new book, The Joy of Genius. It's full of a a technique, particularly one I call the genius move, that is a way of specifically clearing out of your mind all of the things that you don't have any control over. And when you do that, this other space opens up that welcomes your creativity in it. And I'm not saying it's easy. It just takes some focus and dedication. Nothing in life that's of value is actually easy. Anything that's given to you just as a gift I can testify from probably having several hundred trust fund recipients in my office over the years no matter how many millions of dollars are given to you it doesn't cure the fundamental issues that you had the day you got the money in fact it often makes them worse so when we have to go down into the we have to go down into the fundamentals to get the essence of life and that is we need to welcome into ourselves all the things that we've been trying to control, such as our feelings and our our um, our needs and even ultimately our genius that many people have tried to stuff their genius underneath a whole set of things that are about things that they don't have any control over, such as what other people think of them and procrastination and things of that nature. So. Just to say a final word about the genius move, it's a, uh, and the reason I'm saying a final word about it is out my window, I can see my next person approaching my uh, office. (laughs) So uh, I know I'm going to have a waiting room shortly of uh, people who want to talk about other things with me. But (laughs) for this moment, let me just say that the genius move is, the reason it's so important is because it takes every problem you have and shows you a way to unhook the problem energy out of it so that the problem disappears and it becomes an opportunity to embrace your genius. So that's why I say the joy of genius is as good as good sex or all the things (laughs) are a great gourmet meal because it has that expansive ability to it that it takes you into the zone of the timeless. And that's how I want to live my life, in a timeless zone where I'm never in a hurry, but I'm always getting twice as much done as uh, I ever did before.
0: Wow. All right. So I know you got to go. So we're gonna, I'm going to finish with two final questions. Uh, one of the things you said is paradoxically, our struggle with negative thinking only ends when we declare that we have no control over it, uh, which I think is a really nice segue from what we were just talking about. And yet we live in a world where people read books like yours specifically to end their struggle with negative thinking. We listen to podcasts like this one to end the struggle with negative thinking. So why is that? And how do we we deal with this duality?
1: Yes, all of the self-help books, all of the podcasts, all of my personal counseling comes to the point, brings you to the point Where you have to realize in yourself, oh, I have no control over that. That's a 10 second thing, but no matter how many times I tell it to you or you tell it to me, you only come to that realization by a personal moment of truth. And the moment you find yourself thinking negatively, and instead of trying to control it, Instead, you say, oh, that's beyond my control. That just happened automatically. That's when it begins to recede. What you don't want to do is try to drown out your negative thinking or take a sip of liquor or smoke a cigarette or go get some exercise or whatever you've been using to try to control it. Don't do that. Instead. Declare it uncontrollable. And then just like declaring, you know, same thing with somebody that you don't like to hang out with. When you see them on the street, say a friendly hello and keep on moving. Same thing with negative thoughts. Say a friendly hello to them. Oh, yeah, there I am again thinking negatively. Hello. And then just let it go. Because what's on the other side of that is an encounter with your genius. And that's priceless.
0: Wow. Wow. Okay, well, I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something
1: unmistakable? What do I think it is that makes somebody or someone unmistakable? Ooh, I love that. Well, for me, it's opening up to your own essence, the unique you, the one-of-a-kind being that you are and that I am, and to find that spark of essence, that spark of genius, that spark of pure human creativity that's unlike anybody else's, and to bring that forth, that's what makes people unmistakably creative. Mm.
0: Wow. Uh, Well, I I think that makes a really fitting end to an incredibly insightful and thought-provoking conversation. Where can people find out more about you, your work, and the new book?
1: Go to joyofgenius.com. That's the best place because you can sign up for some other bonuses there, joyofgenius.com. And then also our regular website, hendricks.com, H-E-N-D-R-I-C-K-S.com. That's our big jumping off place for everything else that we do, all of our e-courses and things. But for right now, Joy of Genius is a good place because it'll tell you all about the book, show you where to buy it, and uh, then you can sign up for a free seminar that I give in conjunction with the book only for people that that buy and use the books. Then I give them some advanced things that uh, you can do that um, once you start putting the joy of genius to work for you.
0: Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring,